The rest of you can, uh, can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We will be on page 858 of the Bibles that we provided for you there in the row. So if you're using one of those Bibles, we'll be on page 858. We're in... Uh, Sermon 5, week 5 of about a 40 or so uh, week study through the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so if you're first or second time guest with us, you're, you're pretty early on in the process. And of course, it's one of those deals where no matter what Sunday you are here, we, uh, we can benefit from uh, God's Word together. Well, uh, as we get into the, to the text today, Luke chapter 3, uh, we're going to examine the first 20 verses. I just want to ask you a simple question. Perhaps someone has already maybe asked you this question uh, this morning, and that is simply this. How was your week? Has anyone asked you that this morning? How was your week? It's kind of that, is, that a, is that a question that you filled pretty regularly? How was your week? Oh, it was pretty good. Yeah, I did this and this and this, right? It's kind of how we, and you know, the older that I get, the more I realize that I have new answers to that question, you know? Maybe, maybe when I was a youth, it was, I mean, I had a good time this week, I got to hang out with my friends, didn't have too much homework, this, that, and the other, right? But, but today, when someone asks me that question, almost my mind invariably goes to, was it a productive week, right? So when someone asks me that question, how was your week? I'm thinking, it was a pretty good week because it was a pretty productive week. I mean, do you, do you feel this? Do you, do you sometimes evaluate your week based on your productivity? I mean, I like, to, I like to get things done, right? That's kind of the point of work after all, right? Maybe you've read that book, Getting Things Done by David Allen. You got to have your, your task list and your next action list, your things to do, your things not to do list, you know? I try to part, you know, map out my priorities for the week, and the priorities for next week and this month and next month. And, and you know, the, the name of the game is to get things done. If you are from the global south or maybe the American south, you like to get her done. You know, you know what I'm saying? You, you like this? Yeah, some of you southerners got that. Get, get her done? Uh, never mind. Um, so, um, so why is this? Why? Well, because we often equate productivity with success, right? With accomplishment. Sometimes even with, with notoriety or prestige or, 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 or at least a sense of self-satisfaction. And, and those things in and of themselves are, are not necessarily bad things. But the question becomes, do we almost become obsessed with productivity? Where we begin to define our lives around how productive our week was on any given week. What about What about you? What do you want to produce? Politicians want to produce votes, right? We've been reminded of that again and again and again during this political season. Artists want to produce masterpieces, right? What about you? What do you want to produce with your life? Perhaps the better question for us to ask this morning is, is not what we want to produce with our lives, but what does God want us to produce with our lives? And the great thing this morning is that Luke 3 is going to help us identify what God wants us to produce with our life. And, and what we're going to see here is that God wants us to produce the fruit of godliness through a life of repentance. So let's dive in here to the first six verses of Luke chapter 3. We're going to 
trek through the ministry pretty quickly of John the Baptist, this one that was foretold in chapter 1. First one starts like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, John the Baptist, who was this guy? John was, in a sense, a prophet of old. He was, as we just said, the one that was foretold in Luke chapter 1. Hey, there was one who is coming who will be the forerunner of Messiah. And this was a huge deal to the people of Israel. Why? Because they had been waiting for another prophet to bust on the scene, if you will. It had been about 460 years since Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, had prophesied. And so there had been kind of this this, uh, vacuum of the word coming forth. And so when it says in verse 2, I mean, we have in verse 1 the historical context of John's ministry being set, and more importantly, the the historical context of the ministry of Jesus being set for us. But then in verse 2, we have this important announcement that the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. And this is so important. Why? Because this is what the the Old Testament always said of God's prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Micah. You can go on down the list. The word of God came to them and they spoke the word. And so when we see that this word has come in the wilderness, this has huge ramifications for the people of Israel. Why is that? It's because they were looking for this voice to come. And not just from anywhere, but a voice out of the wilderness. And they needed this voice out of the wilderness because this voice was going to proclaim that salvation is on its way. And this is what Luke 3 tells us, quoting actually Isaiah 40. Check it out again in verse 4. It says that John will be the voice of one crying in the wilderness. By the way, that's, that's good preaching right there. Just a voice crying. That's all it is, okay? Not a voice that has like a lot of other input to add to what God has said. In fact, we want to add nothing to what God has said. We just want to say what God has said. And that's what John did. He just spoke what God told him to speak. So he's a voice of one crying. And what does he say? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And then he gives this imagery, right? Every valley shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Now, what do we have here? We have a level plain, a a, a terrain that is easy to traverse, right? 
So this is what John is doing. He's preparing the way for God. He is, in a sense, expediting the path for people to get to Jesus the Messiah. And if maybe you're like me, you appreciate an expedited path. Do, do, do you kind of, can you identify with this? I mean, you know, when I have to go somewhere, I, I don't know exactly where I'm going, pull out my iPhone, right? Google Maps, type in the address, get the route started. And, and what happens then? Usually, if Google Maps is being friendly, you know, to me, it won't just give me one route. It will give me one, two, and a third route. And so, you know, I don't always trust the first route. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've got I've to click that. Then I'm hitting route number two, route number three. And maybe, just maybe, you know, I'm going to start on route one. But if I know that traffic's going to be bad, there's going to be a lot of traffic lights or rotaries, hello, Boston, then, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to even deviate from that, try to find a couple cut-through streets so that I can get there even faster. Can you identify with that maybe just a little bit? Yeah? So that's to save time for me, right? Not, not a huge deal. But, but when John is saying, I'm making straight the past, preparing a way, this is so huge because why? Verse 6 tells us, and all flesh shall see the salvation of of God. So I love this verse, right? I mean, it keeps coming up again and again in Luke. We, we said the first week, we said the third week. I mean, salvation is for all people. So I, listen, I don't, I don't care what your background is, where, you, where you've come from this morning, okay? You may not feel like you are worthy of salvation. Your life may have been really checkered and in your past, not so pretty. But let me, let me just say that salvation is for all people. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how you know, young or, or, or how, you know, how much money you have. Or... Salvation is for all people. And I hope that you will wrestle with that, that God desires that all people, including you, embrace the salvation that he extends in Christ. And so if you can take a word from John the Baptist this morning, what is John saying? He's saying, look, whatever would stand in the way of you receiving this salvation in Christ, then get it out of the way. Remove it. Annihilate it if you want to put it in those kind of strong terms. Because there's nothing better, there's nothing richer or truer or more satisfying than salvation that is found in Christ. So John is this voice. He's, he's calling people to prepare themselves for Messiah, and he's doing it in a very straightforward way with a very straightforward message, and that is one of repentance. And so what I want to do as we work through this passage is I want to take us on a kind of a, of a theological journey, if you will, on the doctrine of repentance and what it looks like to live a productive and pleasing life before God. All right? You ready for this? I hope so. Point number one. A productive spiritual life begins with genuine repentance. A productive spiritual life begins with genuine repentance. Let's look back in verse 3. Here's John. It says that describing his ministry, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming what? A baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we will talk more about the distinctions between John's baptism and the baptism that Jesus brings and we experience today in the church. We'll hit that later, but just know that John's baptism was one of repentance, as was his message, a message of repentance. And we pick that up in verse seven. Look at what it says. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, so maybe you are glad that John the Baptist is not the weekly preacher at Redemption Hill, right? I mean, he is, he is just telling it like it is. I mean, perhaps he would get along well with Bostonians, right? I mean, just tell it like it is, in your face, not afraid to hurt your feelings, you know, kind of, kind of feedback, I mean, so when we see John the Baptist, we get this picture. He isn't a preacher. Maybe you've seen some on TV that have this perpetual smile on their face. I mean, I can't, I cannot do that if I practice for 100 years, you know? Good morning. It's great to see everyone. Let me open your Bibles. Let's, that wasn't, that wasn't John, all right? He wasn't handing out roses to everyone before they, when they, they heard him preach, Okay? And why is that? It's not because the gospel is absent of joy, right? It's not, joy's not absent from the gospel. But when we're talking about matters, listen, matters of life and death, John understood that eternal destinies were at stake when he preached God's word. And so, yeah, there was a measure of seriousness and weightiness to what he had to say. And so at times we do need to be direct. We need to sound an alarm. And the heart of his message is in verse 8. So if you don't walk away with any other verse, walk away with verse 8 this morning. What does he say? He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So what exactly is repentance? If, if there is a notion of genuine repentance, then we can assume that perhaps there is some false repentance that we sometimes get into. So let's first talk about what repentance is not, okay? Repentance is not simply feeling sorry. And maybe, maybe you've, you've, you've had this experience before. You, you sin against maybe a friend, which consequently you've you probably sinned against God, but, but you sin against God. You deviate from his plan, his, you, you know, his will for your life. And so you, you feel sorrowful, right? And that's, that's a good thing. That's actually part, we'll see, it's part of true repentance. But, but sometimes our sorrow is what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 10, a worldly sorrow. All right, you say, what is that? Well, a worldly sorrow is sorrow, is being sorry for what we've done, but it never actually leads to change. In fact, sometimes to make it worse, we feel sorry because we're really more concerned about how we look in other people's eyes, right? I mean, this is a real challenge that we face as 
believers in Christ, we are often so much more concerned about what other people think than what God thinks about us. And godly sorrow is being sorry for our sin because we have offended the truth and beauty and goodness of God. And we are more concerned that we haven't made ourselves look bad, although, yeah, we look bad when we sin, but we're more concerned that we have made God look bad. We have distorted the picture of his glory. And so it's not just feeling sorry for our sin. Repentance is, is also not beha- behavior modification. All right? God is not interested in religious conformity that does not flow from a changed heart. A person can look, and this is what's going on here in the text, okay? These religious people, or Israel was full of religious people. Greater Boston still today is filled with religious people to one degree or another, right? And so these religious people were coming to John and saying, man, John, you know, what's up with this? You know, I, I want to be baptized. I want to receive this forgiveness. And John, what does he say? He says, you brood of vipers. In other words, these people, we even find in, in the Gospel of Matthew that, that some of these were religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of his day, people who you would think were really devoted to God, really had it all together. And what John is calling out is that they looked really good on the outside, very pristine externally, but inside they were a mess, a spiritual wreck before God. And this is us sometimes, right? We look good on the outside. We think because, man, like, like these guys, they were descendants of Abraham, and they should have been partakers of the covenants of promise. And if, if anyone should have seen the beauty of God and, and been prepared for Christ's coming, it should have been these people, but that's not always how it works. And so John is saying, look, don't trust in your, your spiritual pedigree or your, or your ancestors, Okay. And sometimes people do this today, right? It's like, my mom brought me to church. My mom still goes to church. I must be okay with God. My grandmother, she has a lot of faith. Man, maybe, maybe the faith of my grandmother will kind of get me in with God, you know, like, like a friend who has the hookup, you know, into a certain place. You know, you're going to ride on the coattails of your friend to get into whatever that place may be. It's not how it's going to work with God. No one will ride on the spiritual coattails of someone else to find acceptance before God and life in him. So you can't trust in your pedigree, and you can't trust in trying to be this good person that has it kind of all together on the outside when what's going on on the inside has never been changed by God's grace. God is interested in heart change because when we have a changed heart, then it's going to flow from the outside. Okay. So that is what repentance is not. What then is genuine repentance? Well, here's a a little bit of a definition for you. Genuine repentance involves a change of mind that leads to turning from sin to life in Christ. And let's just break this down a bit here this morning. Number one, it's a change of mind, okay? So when we see this word repentance in the New Testament, it most directly refers to a change of mind, okay? 
And this change of mind will lead to a change of action that will consequently result in a change of one's life. So it begins in in the mind. There is an incessant battle going on for our mind. Our thoughts, what will we believe? John hit this a few weeks ago when we looked at uh, what spiritual worship should look like out of Romans 12, where Paul says, don't be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be renewed. How? By, By the renewal of your mind. And he took us back to Romans 1, and he said that what has happened in the fall and how we've deviated from God is that we've been influenced by futile thinking, all right? So there's a failure to believe God and his promises and commands, and we deviate and we believe the lies of Satan, and we go our own way. So think about this. Perhaps the reason that you are not experiencing the power of the gospel at work in your life is because you are not believing the gospel fervently enough. How's your marriage? Did you love your wife this week? Did you love your husband this week? Were you inclined to serve them or were you inclined to be selfish? as you believe the gospel and meditate on the gospel, you remember that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so that the gospel drives our love for our spouse or for anyone for that matter. Because just as God has loved us, so we are to love one another. And we're to lay our lives down in a kind of a sacrificial way. It's believing the gospel fervently enough, as one author puts it. So there's this war raging for the the allegiance of our thoughts and our mind. That's where repentance starts, and it doesn't stop there. Uh, I want to give you um, uh, some ingredients, a list of ingredients from Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan author, and and he has six ingredients for true repentance, okay? Number one, there has to be a sight of sin, all right? Sometimes we, we never repent because we just don't see our sin, We don't know that we're blowing it, man. We're just kind of going on. We've been blinded, and and we need someone maybe to help us see. I mean, you've you've deviated from God's plan. Or maybe you're reading the Word, and you're saying, man, you know what? Or you're hearing a sermon. (laughs) You're saying, you know what, man? Yeah, I see it now. But sometimes we just stop there. Yeah, we see it, and we don't do anything about it. What's next? Well, we have a sorrow for sin, like we talked about, a godly sorrow that we have moved away from God's will for our life, and then we confess it. We confess it to God. We maybe even confess it to one another, like the scriptures encourage us to, so we might find healing. And we feel, number four, a proper shame for sin. All right, and what is this about? Well, it's, it's, it's about the, the holiness and the honor of God, the glory of God. And when we realize just how awesome he is, we're gonna naturally feel a sense of shame that we have dishonored and actually kind of taken away from what rightly belongs to him. So we're shamed for our sin, and then hopefully this moves us to, this one's tough, hatred for our sin. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, Romans 12, 9. Do you hate your sin? When you blow it, does that, I mean, does it just kind of eat you up inside that you have, have wronged God? When we hate our sin, then the last 
step is hopefully that we will turn from our sin. So repentance involves a change of mind that leads to turning from our sin. So let's just now dwell right there. So, so we, we, we aren't just you know, seeing it and, and confessing it and sorrow for it, sorry for it, and, and then you know, shamed by it and, and hating it, but we actually turn. We say, man, I am done with that. I am dead to that, man. I do not want to go back there. There is, a, there is a new desire to change, to turn. And this is so crucial because to turn from sin is actually to, to turn from destruction. I want you to think about that. To turn from sin is to turn from destruction in every case. This is why John had such a, a, a bold message. You could say, I mean, John was hardcore, right? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's not super popular to talk about hell these days. You know, the first time I was in Boston, maybe you, some of you can identify with this, I actually came to Boston back in 05. It was my first trip up here. And um, this is the year after, you know, Sox had won the World Series. I'm a big Red Sox fan, so I, I took a short trip, just an overnight trip, actually slept in the airport. That's probably all the details you need for that. I was single at the time and saving money, and so my flight flew out early the next day. And I, I went to Fenway, scalped the ticket, got a great deal. It was amazing, $30 for a $45 seat near Pesky's Pole. And anyway, so I'm, I'm walking up trying to find my ticket, and, and who do I see out on, uh, let's see, Ross, what is it, uh, the, um, the, the main road? that comes down from Kenmore Square, you know what I'm talking about, into Fenway, everybody knows, you go up to, over the bridge, right? And, and who's standing there? This evangelist, right? He has a huge sign on his neck draped around him that says basically like repent or perish or turn or burn, like with flames kind of coming up around the sign. Have you seen him there? And I'll say to his credit, he was pretty reserved, at least in his demeanor, even if his message wasn't so reserved. I mean, he wasn't like yelling at people or anything. We've all seen that before too, right? But, but maybe you've seen him there near Fenway Park at a home game. And, and you know what? I mean, I, I naturally, it's like, oh man, dude, here we go again, right? Are you serious? But, but I will say this. His method may not be the, the, the most beneficial for you know, today's context. There may be a better way to get the message out, start in a different place, but at the end of the day, his message is accurate. If we do not repent, turn from our sin, the consequences are destruction. Sin has separated us from God it's, it's the natural consequence of God's holiness. God is so holy that he cannot allow sin into his presence. And so our sin has separated us from God. Spiritually, we are, the Bible says we're, we're dead in our sin and trespasses. And the way to life is through Christ. So that has to be part of our message. And John is, is very, very direct. Look in verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we have to, to see that, that 
There is a call to repent, to turn from our sin, to turn to Christ and live the life that God designed for us to live in the very beginning. And that is where life is found. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my heroes in the faith, a a pastor from uh, the last century in London, he, he said this. Someone asked him the question, if you had one thing to say to someone on your deathbed, what would it be? And he, he flipped the, the, the script a little bit on our friend, but he didn't deviate much. He said, flee to Christ and escape the wrath to come. Flee to Christ and escape the wrath to come. God's wrath is his, his holy and just anger against our sin. God is a just God. He will judge. But here's the good news, is that if we will look to him and receive Christ, Christ has satisfied the justice and judgment of God on the cross. So now when God is looking at me, man, his wrath is not reserved for me. Why? Because Jesus took my sin, my shame, my punishment, the penalty for my sin, and he nailed it to the cross. So through faith in him, I mean, I have life. Abundant life now, eternal life forever. And the gift is there for all people. So we turn from our sin, the destructiveness of our sin, but that's not all. Because if the gospel was just, hey, stop it, that wouldn't be such great news, would it? I mean, honestly, it's like, stop it. Don't stop doing that. It's just a list of rules, man. I wouldn't be very excited about the whole thing. But thankfully, it's not just turn from your sin, turn from yourself and your selfish desires, but it's turn to Christ. Find life in him. So so listen to our statement of faith. I'm sure you all have memorized this. You've been to our website. If you're a member, you've affirmed that you sign off on our statement of faith. So maybe you've memorized our statement on repentance. So good. A little little archaic in the wording, all right? But we're historically rooted around here. So uh, repentance is a gift from God. It's a gift of God wherein a person by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evil of his sin, humbles himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrence. Okay, you see all those ingredients of Watson in these phrases? And then notice this last statement. With a purpose and endeavor to walk before God so as to please him in all things. So why is repentance so important? It's because it's in repentance that we can and we are freed up to live a life that is pleasing to God. To state it negatively, to fail to exercise repentance is is going to mean that we are going to fail to please God. The one whom we were created for. And so repentance is, is so crucial Our repentance, a productive spiritual life begins with genuine repentance. Number two, a productive spiritual life flows from continual repentance. In other words, genuine repentance should be practiced continually. It's an everyday thing that results in everyday transformation. Look in verses 10 through 14. It says that the crowds asked him then, after they hear this strong, hardcore message from John, there is a good response here. They say what? What shall we do? And he answered them, here's what you do. 
If you really want to repent, then, then you're going to bear fruit. And here's what fruit looks like. To the crowds, he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So what John is saying here is that if you are truly going to repent, then it is going to manifest itself in your day-to-day-to-day actions. I love what Martin Luther says in his first First thesis statement of his 95 theses, okay, the kind of the, the catalytic um, you know, statement that he nailed to the, to the door of Wittenberg Castle, right? And it kind of sparked the Reformation, okay? His, his first thesis statement wasn't, you know, hey, the Pope's a bad guy, all right? It wasn't, you know, indulgences, man, that's, that's not the way it should be. His first statement was for everyone. And he said this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent in Matthew 4, 17, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. So this is an everyday thing. This is, this is something that every single day, man, we have something, lots of mess in our life that we're just constantly working on saying, God, help me, I see it. I'm turning from that. I want to I repent and place faith in you day by day by day. Believe the, God, the gospel more fervently. And so very practically then, after this message, the people start to begin, so what, are we, what should we do? And he says, John basically says, well, how about loving your neighbor? Do you see someone in need? You have a couple of tunics, well, how about you give one of those up so that they can stay warm? You got a lot of food on your plate. You got a lot of money in your bank account. Why don't you dish some of that out so that someone else can eat? That's the fruit of repentance. Tax collectors, soldiers. Hey, why don't you stop robbing and and bribing people to put more in your pockets? Why don't you deal honestly and justly with your customers? And what I love about this and what I love about Christianity is is Christianity, a commitment to Christ, does not pull us out of the world to kind of be in our little Christian ghetto, but it transforms the way that we live in the world. You get that? So we are to live out our vocation in a distinctly Christian kind of way. John hit this last week, to go back to last week's sermon. He talked about our identity, right? Our identity needs to be found in Christ. So it's not that, you know, uh, you're no longer a banker or a student or, you know, a, a worker at, you know, you fill in the blank. Okay, that's, that's part of your responsibilities, but here's the deal. Now you are a Christian businessman, a Christian author, a Christian artist. You fill in the blank. Christ defines us. He drives us. He gives us new desires and delights in him. So now it's Christian husband, Christian father, Christian pastor, Christian basketball coach, Christian hanging out with my friends, Christian, got it? And it transforms everything, everything. Love for our neighbor 
giving ourselves away as Christ has given himself for us. And so all of this is built again on verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Some of you have been apple picking recently, right? This is New England after all. And, and I, don't, I don't know a lot about apple trees. Okay, kind of walk up and kind of identify which is what or whatever. I, I just know this. Apple trees produce what? Apples, all right? I didn't grow up in California or Florida like some of you, but I know that orange trees produce oranges. I'm getting somewhere here. Christians produce godly fruit. Got it? Maybe to think about it another way. Dunkin' Donuts produces coffee. However ironic that is. Some of you will get that a little later. Um, Dunkin' Donuts produces coffee. Sam Adams produces beer, right? Christians produce fruit. It's what we do. It's what should come out of our lives when God has changed us, when we've seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and God has given us his spirit and changed us from the inside out. I mean, we're just going to produce fruit. So Luke 3, 8 says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. If you want to memorize another verse this morning, Matthew 3, 8 says the exact same things. It changes a plural to a singular. It says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And somehow I have to think that maybe Sam Harris, renowned atheist, has, you know, included this in his Bible contradictions. You know, this one says bear fruits, and this one says bear fruit, and, you know, the Bible constantly contradicts itself. Why is that? Well, we bear fruits of godliness, right, in our day-to-day life, and all of these fruits add up to fruit fruit, right? It's pretty simple. And so when Galatians 5.22 says, bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And then he says, against such things there is no law. I mean, this is characteristic of a Christian's life. Love and joy and peace. This is the fruit that comes out of our life. Humility is a fruit of the Spirit. Generosity is a fruit of the Spirit. A hunger for God is a fruit of the Spirit. It says, and things such as these. So this is why we have continual need for continual repentance. And let me just say, if this is the goal, that we would bear fruit to the Father's glory, to quote Jesus in John 15, 8, then we should constantly be asking ourselves, ruthlessly evaluating if we are bearing fruit. I mean, I know at the end of the week, we think about, man, it was a productive week. I got a lot done at work, and, you know, it was good, and I got this task list done, and this honey-do list done at home, and da-da-da-da-da. But, but do we ever just kind of pause and spiritually evaluate? Yeah, this was productive this week. I mean, I was, I was a little less prideful and a little more humble in my relations with others. Man, that person that just drives me bananas at, at work, you know, like I was at least a little more patient with them this week and a little more kind, a little more like Christ. I, I didn't just work, I actually worked hard. You know, I, did, I didn't, you know, like check out and play games, you know, here and there when I was supposed to be actually doing something my boss asked me to do, I was actually working hard as unto the Lord. And the gospel just changes us day by day by day. And this is the value of community groups. This is why we have community groups at Redemption Hill, because we want to push each other to walk before God in a holy manner. So we can experience a productive spiritual life 
when we begin with genuine repentance, when we practice continual repentance. But here's number three, and, and finally. Productive spiritual life comes only through the baptism of Jesus. All right, so let's, let's pick up in verse 15 as we move to finish up. It says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning God, John whether he might be the Christ. And so John sets the record straight in verse 16, and he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in hand to clear the, his fleshing, threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will b- burn with in- unquenchable fire. So, so John has a, a very popular ministry. I mean, he is gaining a following. And people even begin to question, hey, maybe, maybe he's the Christ. And John knows this. He gets his wind of this, and he says, you know what? Hold up. I am not the Christ. In fact, just to kind of prove to you that I'm not the Christ, I will tell you a couple ways that he is better. Number one, he's just better than me. His character is different. He's divine. I'm not. So he is, he is so divine. He is so worthy of worship. The Bible is clear about the divinity of Christ, by the way. He is so worthy of worship that I, I'm not even, I shouldn't even take the position of a slave, something that a Jew would never do for someone else, and even untie his sandals. That's how worthy Christ is. He's mightier than I. He is stronger than I. So, so he is better than me, but, but also his work is also better than me. I baptize you in water for, for, for repentance, okay? But he is going to baptize you not just with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that is good news, by the way, because you know what? All the stuff we've been talking about, repent and bear fruit, genuine repentance, continual repentance. Let me just tell you something. You can't repent, You can't repent apart from the grace of God and the Spirit baptizing your life and changing you from the inside out. This is what John is talking about when he says the baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit covers us. He makes us new. Now we have a new life, new desires. We've been born again. We have have a a new uh, will that wants to follow after God. And so this baptism here, it says that he'll baptize us with with the spirit and with fire. This fire is, again, another picture of the judgment. I mean, there are two camps of people when you boil it all down in the world. Those who follow Christ have been baptized by his spirit are those who will experience a baptism of fire and judgment. So to to finish up, let's let's talk about baptism here. Just a, a little theology here to kind of help us. There, there are three, really four baptisms going on in Luke 3. You have the baptism of John, you have the baptism of the Spirit, fire, and then finally, which we'll look at next week, the actual baptism of Jesus. All right, so let's draw some distinctions here. John's baptism was preparatory, all right? He was preparing the way. He was preparing people to look for Messiah. So when he is baptizing people in the water and calling them to repent, he is preparing them to look for the Messiah. But Christian baptism is something altogether different. It is not a baptism of preparation. It's a baptism of proclamation. In other words, Christ has changed my life in such a way I've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that now I want to tell people that. I want to display and proclaim that to the world. And so I am going to follow through with water baptism. 
This is why we practice immersion here. We're actually having a baptism service at the end of this month. It's going to be so exciting because why is it, what's the significance about baptism? Water baptism follows spirit baptism. You got it? So when God's spirit convinces someone of their need for Christ, helps them to turn away from themselves and sin and turn to Christ and now live for him, we have new life in him and the old, the old us has died. It's what, it's what Paul says in Romans 6. Let me just flip there for you. You can flip there if you want. Romans 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's not how grace works. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. All right, now I know that was a lot there, but this is why when we baptize, we put people all the way under the water. It's called immersion, all right? We, because it's a picture of how we have died to ourselves, died to our sin, and we have been raised to, to new life in Christ, that we might live a totally different life. So baptism is actually, we like to say, a drama of the gospel. It's, it's telling a story, right? And so let me just say, hey, if, if God has given you his spirit and caused you to be born again, and you've never followed through with, with water baptism, Christian baptism that we practice as churches, then I want to encourage you to do that. There's nothing better. Man, it is a celebration, and let me, just, let me just wrap up with this thought, okay? Repentance, faith, and baptism in the New Testament is never a dull thing. It's never a dull thing. I mean, when, when someone sees Christ for who he is, Jesus tells a parable. It's like a man who was walking through a field and he found treasure, and then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has so that he can buy that field, so he can possess it. It's actually, if you want to boil it, that, that parable is a picture of repentance and faith. Man, I am willing to sell everything else that I have in my life so that I might have Christ, so that I might have the treasure, that I might have the riches of God given to me as inheritance in Christ. There's nothing better. So when Jesus talks about the prodigal of the parable son, and, and, and you know, there is great joy in heaven. Man, let's celebrate. Let's, let's get the fattened calf and let's throw a huge party. Why? Because new life has come to this once dead person. It is good news. And I'm telling you, man, John the Baptist, he was serious, but I'm sure this guy, he knew how to smile too, right? Because the gospel is good. The joy, the peace, the hope, the transformative power that the Spirit brings is ultimate freedom. So let me just ask you, have you been baptized with the baptism of Jesus? The, the Holy Spirit coming into your life, changing you. Because if you have not, man, there's no better time to say, you know what, I need that, like right now, today. I know that I haven't lived my life for God. I'm done with that, man. I am in today. I want to follow Christ. If that's you, I mean, we want, to, we want to know that. So if you would, respond on the back of the connection card. Just let us know, man, I am in. I want to learn more about Jesus and Christianity. I want to follow him with my life. But maybe some of you have been baptized by the Spirit. You've received the baptism of Jesus, but you need to follow through with believers' baptism. Just make that public. Go public with that awesome reality. 
and follow through in believer's baptism. So if that's you, take that connection card. Let us know. We'll celebrate together on October 28th this awesome work that God has done in our lives. So productivity, how do you measure it? What do you want to produce? My prayer is that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word, the richness of it. Lord, we pray that you would uh, awaken our hearts to our need to just constantly, day by day by day, genuine, continual repentance before you, turning from our sin, turning to Christ, finding all satisfaction and joy in him. And so, Father, I, I, I would be surprised if there aren't some people who are wrestling with this whole reality of following Christ and turning from, from sin and turn to you. And I just pray that you would open their eyes and give them your spirit and, and give them new life in you. Lord, maybe for some that are wrestling with just following through with, with water baptism, Christian baptism, God, I pray that you give them the courage and the strength to follow through with that. And, and Lord, added to all that, we pray that, that we as a church would live out what our baptism communicates on a daily basis that we might bear much fruit and bring glory to your great name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.